Creating a diet based on the bioenergetic view can be difficult, but in this episode, we're going to make it easy by laying out exactly what to do in terms of macronutrients, calories, and meal timing to create an optimal diet. This is episode 100 of the Energy Balance Podcast, a podcast where we explore health and nutrition from the bioenergetic view and teach you how to maximize your cellular energy to maximize your health. This is part one of a two-part series on building a bioenergetic diet. And in today's episode in particular, we'll be discussing optimal macronutrient breakdowns for meals and snacks, how to calculate your protein, carbohydrate, and fat needs, how to use cravings, taste, hunger, and experimentation to guide your macronutrient intake, how to find your starting calorie intake, and the optimal number of meals and snacks to have in a day. As always, to check out the show notes for today's episode, you can head over to jfeldmanwellness.com podcast, where we'll link to the studies and articles and anything else that we discussed throughout today's episode. And with that, let's get started. All right. So we've had a ton of new people, ton of new listeners uh, to the podcast. And so with that in mind, I've gotten quite a few questions looking, you know, people looking for some practical places to start, some practical advice, uh, you know, some immediate things to implement to, you know, and having a little bit of, of direction when it comes to adjusting their diet in in alignment with the bioenergetic view. And of course, one of the places that I always recommend people start is with the earlier podcast episodes, specifically episodes one through seven, where we really took some time to build a foundation in terms of the understanding of some of the, the most important pieces and fundamental pieces of the bioenergetic view, talking about blood sugar and stress hormones and gut health and, and things like that and the importance of energy, uh, creating some context there. But, you know, and then throughout the episodes, we've also always taken some time to talk through dietary recommendations and suggestions based on different conditions, based on different situations someone might be dealing with. But I figured it would be helpful to have one episode dedicated just to that with a lot of those recommendations in one place. And we did have some of these recommendations in episode seven, so we'll kind of provide a bit of an update there to uh, to our views, some newer adjustments that maybe we've made, small tweaks, nothing major, but uh, just some small things that we've adjusted since that point in terms of macronutrients and uh, guidelines and things like that. So we'll go through some uh, suggestions as far as meal timing and guidelines for creating meals. We'll go through suggestions as far as macronutrient breakdown and also some specifics as far as where to get our nutrients from in terms of foods, what, you know, what some of those foods are that we would recommend using. So again, I will recommend that at the very least at the end, you know, after listening through this episode, you do go back and listen through those older episodes of the podcast, because it's extremely important to build that understanding of the why behind these guidelines. And it's part of why we always hesitate when we make or suggest things like this or create recommendations like this. Because if you don't have the understanding of the why, it's really easy to make mistakes. It's really easy to veer from the path unknowingly, and it's much harder to kind of come back and correct and uh, experiment in a in an educated way that gives you the best chance of having success. So, take all these guidelines with a grain of salt and with the you know with some understanding that having a deep importance of the why is is going to go much longer, you know, much farther away. But at least these will be some starting points. Uh, do you have anything you want to jump in and add, Mike, before we jump into the meal timing and uh, some guidelines about creating meals? Yeah, just something really quick. The 
I think to put into perspective is understanding the why, at least for me, allows allows me to build a mental framework in my mind where things actually are interrelated with each other. And then that's, people always ask me, how do you remember all this stuff? How do you know all this stuff? And it's not like I'm very good at memorizing things because I'm not, I wasn't a great memorizer. If I had to memorize stuff for a test in school, mm-hmm. I would, I couldn't do it because I had no motivation for it. It, it, would, it wouldn't go well. Mm-hmm. However, if I integrated the concepts or the ideas into my mental framework, this kind of web of knowledge, and they actually had a place inside that web of knowledge, then I would, then I wouldn't have a problem memorizing them. So I didn't have to focus on, uh, thyroid does this, thyroid does this, thyroid does this. But it was more when I knew, when I understood like what the context that thyroid was functioning in, or I understood the importance of carbohydrate in thyroid function and why I wanted to optimize thyroid function from like a general health context, there was no need to memorize anymore. So I think the whys become very important to understanding and integrating the knowledge together and so that you have a broad view of what's going on. And then that when you go to make decisions, you're much more easily informed instead of having to memorize this list of things that you have to do, which is like, oh, I do this because of X, Y, and Z instead of, oh, I have to do this. Oh, I have to do that. So it kind of that, that, that framework of knowledge is extremely important to build out. And that's what the whys give you. And then the implementation is an extension of those. Yeah. Yeah. Those are great points and definitely important things to consider. One other thing, we'll, we'll dig into experimentation a little bit more toward the end, but just, just as a preface, I do want to make it really clear that none of the things that we're saying here are rigid guidelines. We're not saying that this is the absolute best thing for you to do in any scenario. It, as you're saying, this is part of why the why is so important is you need to understand your own context. And for some people, that means it's, it might be doing something that's kind of far from the guidelines we suggest here, or the starting places we suggest here. And so we'll talk about maybe how you could determine that. But yeah, I just want to make that clear that these are not rigid rules and these, there is a place for breaking all of them, essentially, all of these yep. guidelines. So that's something to keep in mind. I, I was, all I was saying is this is just baseline point zero. It just uh, uh, points for you guys to kind of start with. And then that starts your, your journey. So you have a first couple solid steps. And then from there, you have the onus is on you to kind of tweak those steps as you go towards your own individual context. It's difficult when you're using something like principles to have like a, a manifesto as far as of like, this is, this is it. This is what you have to do. Um, it's more, we just want to provide guidelines and context. So you have that you have a starting place. You're not just kind of like, will like out there trying to figure out what to do and with a lot of ambiguous information. Right. And that's what separates this perspective from one where there is a hard rule where all animal products are harmful. You know, if you're taking a vegan perspective or all vegetables are harmful, if you're taking a carnivore perspective or whatever it is, we are focused on the physiology. And that also involves your individual context and the differences between what could be going on for you physiologically versus somebody else. And there are principles that are the same for everyone. And that's where the a lot of these recommendations come from. But we need Again, we might not be ready for all of these things, and that's where those, the tweaking and understanding context comes in. And that's why we have, you know, that's why we have a podcast and explain all those things because it takes time to understand all of that, and there's a lot of nuances. So, yeah, this is as you said, point zero. This is the starting place or a starting place, but you definitely want to learn and understand as much as you can so you can continue to find uh, or tweak in a way that makes sense for your context. Yep. So uh, let's actually start out with the macronutrients, then we'll talk about creating meals because it makes more sense to 
uh, start with kind of the bigger picture and then we'll kind of dial it in. Uh, so as far as macros go, I'll start with protein and then let you go on with fat. So as far as protein goes, our general recommendation is to be getting between 0.6 and 0.8 grams of protein per pound of body weight. Uh, normally, this will end up being about 15 to 25% of your total calories. This is based on research from a few different places, but one of the more prominent ones is from Menno Henselman's, where he basically showed that protein above really like 0.6 to 0.7 grams doesn't provide any benefit, especially from the muscle mass standpoint point, or building muscle. And this is including in athletes and bodybuilders and things like that, as well as untrained individuals. So that's where part of it comes from, as well as this just typically ending up being a good range of protein to fulfill your needs, which of course, this is not only for muscle, but also pretty much any other structural tissue. Protein is the major component there, whether it's organs or skin or whatever it is, uh, you know, any sort of regeneration, all of that is going and healing requires protein as well as building mass, building any sort of, of structure. So that's kind of a, a kind of brief part one there. One caveat I will mention is that when we're talking about the grams per pound of body weight, this is not always going to be a great recommendation if your body weight is very far from quote average. So if you're particularly overweight, if you have a lot of body fat that you are looking to lose, you might want to lower this range a little bit and maybe not go based on your kind of final goal weight, but based on you know a, a leaner body weight, maybe 15 to 20% body fat instead of 30% body fat and use you know, the protein suggestion based off that body weight. Uh, and then the same goes if you're particularly underweight, where the protein suggestion might be a little bit low based on your body weight. Uh, so you might want to assume a slightly higher body weight. Again, part of where the contextualization and individualization comes in. But that would be a starting place as far as protein. And we'll talk about the foods and incorporating that in meals uh, in a moment. But do you have anything to add there as far as general guidelines? Yeah, so if you're a couple things. If you're underweight, or my general rule of thumb for somebody who's very underweight is I go closer to one gram per pound. Um, and that's to, like, and, and the goal is to get this individual to gain adequate weight back. Uh, so I shoot for a higher protein target, particularly because you're going to be trying to put on lean tissue. Like well, most people aren't trying to put on large volumes of body fat. Um, so that's the first piece. And then for people who are like drastically overweight, what I usually will do is I'll, um, it could be goal weight, depending on what that is, like 0.6 to 0.8 grams per pound of goal weight. Or as Jay mentioned, what I would do is determine what lean body mass is. And then I would add maybe 15, 20% fat to or of weight to that lean body mass and calculate the number off of there, which would give you kind of more of an average body fat level to, to shoot for in terms of calculating protein. One thing I would mention for like the gaining mass purposes, again, if we use that mental Hanselman's research, and people who are trying to gain mass, that 0.6 to really 0.72 grams per pound led to the maximal benefit there. And so if somebody's underweight and they did calculate out to assume that they were kind of, quote, normal weight with normal body fat, it probably would end up being about one gram per pound. But I just wanted to mention that when it comes to gaining mass, carbs and fats are, it's hard to say more important because it's all, it's all just as important. It's all maximally important. But carbs and fats, I would say, are going to be more limiting factors when it comes to building mass than protein once you get beyond that you know, 0 0.6, 0 0.7 grams per pound. But with the caveat that that 0 0.6, 0 0.7 grams per pound could be a, an underestimate if you're particularly low in body weight relative to the you know, test subjects that were used. So it would probably still mean being on the high end, maybe in that 0.8 to 1 or 
you know, we could kind of do the same thing as somebody who is overweight as you just assume the opposite, you know, you assume that you're slightly higher weight. Yeah. Yeah. So I, my reference is to underweight people, not like young guys who are bodybuilding and want to gain weight. I think that there, there's, there are problems with having more protein and it's not that it's going to kill your liver or kill your kidneys or anything like that, but it's more that there's more benefit to filling in that, that your calories, your actual energy requirements with fat and carbs than it is to just drastically overloading on protein. Um, especially because at a certain point, your protein is going to go towards like to be oxidized and then you're going to be producing ammonia and then you're going to have to detoxify that ammonia and it, your body has the capabilities to do that. But metabolically, it would just make more sense to, to get the carbohydrate or the fat without having to go through that process. So yeah, that's essentially that's what the 0.6 to 0.8 grams per pound is saying. That's the amount that maximally simulates protein synthesis and that any more than that, you're starting to dip in towards that protein oxidation. And then the 0.6, I think it was 0.64 was the actual value that was determined by the research. And then they added a couple, uh, one or two standard deviations to that value to give that 0.8 value. So the 0.8 value is even like a insurance policy on the overall in terms of making sure that you're getting adequate amounts of protein. And I just, the other piece here is that they tested this also in people who were in deficits. So who were like training on, on caloric restriction and still trying to maintain lean mass. And this value was sufficient. Um, and again, if you're, and this isn't the population that we're usually speaking to, but if you're using steroids, this may be adjusted because you can <laughs> drastically increase muscle protein synthesis. But I think they even found that you maybe need less protein in those circumstances because of the hormonal effect. But I also, there may be some benefit for having more with that extra help. But this is largely for people who aren't using any type of enhancement to that extent um, and who are just looking to increase mm -hmm. health or, or recomposition their body or anything along those lines. Yeah, definitely. And one other thing I'll just add, again, another caveat for someone who is trying to gain weight and even who is underweight, more protein tends to be more filling, which will also make it tougher to get more calories in and come at the cost of the carbs and fats. So again, that might be a situation where I would not want to lean too heavy on the protein and might focus more on the carbs and fats. So yeah, uh, yeah. obviously nuance and context, that's hard to encapsulate entirely. That's the reason why we have guidelines and ranges and why we're mentioning these things. But uh, of course, it's still hard to not get into some of those con contextual situations. But if you want to go ahead with fat. Uh, yeah, so ahead. for fat, um, fat is less defined as like protein or carbs are in the research. I think there's less research looking at like what are optimal amounts of fat on a, in a, on a, for like a general guideline where we could say, oh, it's 0.6 to 0.8 grams per pound. Um, what I usually go for is more amounts per meal that wind up over the course of the day. So I will generally shoot between 10 to 30 grams of fat per meal. And depending on the person, they'll be doing three to four meals per day. Uh, so usually we'll wind up now, again, this is adjusted based on size. So if I have a smaller woman versus a larger, more muscular man, their fat requirements will differ. And then also what their context and goals are, right? So that's the nuance here. But the fat requirements, usually I'll do between roughly 45 grams per day, all the way up to 120 grams per day, or even more depending on like how much muscle mass the individual has. So I generally shoot between there, but I usually break it down per meal. And the reason I break it down per meal, and we'll get into this a little bit more, is fat is important for digestion, fat is important for blood sugar regulation, and fat is important for satiety. 
so that you're lasting between your meals. So I'm really trying to optimize fat on a meal-by-meal basis to avoid excess amounts that create too much satiety, that create digestive issues like bile dumping, that create nausea if you're having too much, and but while at the same time stimulating those bile acids and digestive processes, allowing for you to last long enough between meals so that you don't have to eat every hour, which is common when people go low fat or they first come to Bioenergetic and they learn about the Randall cycle or they and they start to want to be, oh, I'm just going to have carbs and things like that. Um, and then also what I've seen quite consistently is extremely low fat intakes have like a net, have a negative impact on hormonal function in both men and women. Um, so yeah, that's, that's usually where I'm shooting for on the fat side overall. Yeah. And as we'll kind of go throughout, we both approach these things slightly differently. And so I'm not normally considering it as much on a per meal basis. Uh, I do think it's valuable to spread it out in particular ways and all of that. But normally I'm thinking of it, you know, on a percentage basis. And we had mentioned in that previous time where we talked about macro breakdowns in the in episode seven, I believe it was, we mentioned 20% protein, 40% fat, 40% carbs. And I think that that is a great recommendation for somebody who tends to be rather lean, who is a little more active and has more muscle mass and is trying to maintain their weight or maybe even gain weight. However, I don't find that to work as well for most people who don't fall in that category. So for people who have less muscle mass, are less lean, are less active, or are trying to lose weight, sometimes that 40% fat intake can be too much. And I found benefit from, from going down. So you mentioned a pretty wide range. You know, you said 45 to 120 grams or more. So you basically mentioned, you know, 45 grams on the low end, which would be particularly low. Uh, If you're looking to easily create a bioenergetic diet and determine exactly what to eat to optimally support your metabolism and help you lose weight, improve your digestion, get amazing sleep, boost your energy, and so much more, head over to jfeldmanwellness.com slash guide to download the free energy balance food guide. The energy balance food guide is a one-page infographic that organizes pretty much any food that you can think of on a spectrum based on how effectively it supports your metabolism. And it also has a separate spectrum that adjusts this scale for you in the case that you're dealing with various digestive symptoms, which is a pretty common situation. This food guide makes it extremely easy to get started with a bioenergetic approach to optimizing your health. So again, head over to jfeldmanwellness.com guide, that's G-U-I-D-E, to download the free energy balanced food guide. Well, so for one, I wanted to mention that the reason why we mentioned that 40% was for a couple th- couple reasons, but one of them was based on some research showing that the you get the highest levels of testosterone and lowest levels of estrogen with a fat intake of 40% of your total calories. So that is a that, that was part of the reasoning there, but one thing that I think is important to consider is that if somebody is especially overweight, they're going to have more circulating fat, more fatty acid release, more triglyceride release. And so I think that that can actually make up for a considerable amount of our fat need and would probably decrease that total percentage need. And as you were alluding to, there can be some interference or issues if you're relying heavily on fat oxidation when you already have issues with carb oxidation. Uh, So essentially what I would say here is on the low end, normally I would suggest about 20% fat. And I normally go up to about 40% fat intake uh, as far as total calories go. You mentioned 45 grams on the low end, which would be about the same if you're getting, if you have a 2000 calorie diet, about which 20%. is also on the lower end. But if you have it, yeah, that's about 20%. So, uh, you know, our ranges end up being similar, even though we come to them from different places, but or from different angles. 
But so normally I say 20 to 40% and I adjust within that range based on activity, muscle mass, and goals or responses in terms of weight loss versus weight gain. So higher end, if you have higher muscle mass, are more active in that you're using more fat. Normally activity is going to burn considerable amounts of fat, so it increases those needs. You might also, you know, you have, if you have more muscle mass, you have a larger sink for that fat. You have higher fat needs for that reason as well. And uh, that can also help to spare carbohydrates for other areas, which is particularly important for going between meals, as you mentioned. So from a blood sugar standpoint, if you have higher fat needs, you want to be getting more fat in. Otherwise, you'll be triggering stress responses by having too low of fat, which will cause carbs fused too quickly, uh, which will cause drops in blood sugar and will cause the production of our endogenous fat, which requires a lot of the same stress signals that producing our endogenous uh, glucose endogenously does. So the short here, uh, or part of the equation here when it comes to carbs and fats is that we want to be getting enough for our needs. And those needs are going to vary depending on all these aspects of our context. But yeah, I think that would be the main things I'd mentioned from a fat percentage standpoint. Yeah, I've I mirror the same things. Um, the only thing I'll say is, and something that's been quite consistent, like in my client base, is in, in terms of viewing the macronutrients, I I like to think about things in terms of sufficiency. So getting enough of the macronutrient that you need on your particular basis, because I've had quite a few clients who've had hormonal problems, particularly, I think a, a large focus would be like younger men who have testosterone issues or libido issues or things like that, that were easily solved just with adjusting fat intake and bringing like increasing caloric intake, but also specifically increasing fat intake. So I would approach it less from a perspective of like, because the perspective that they were coming from is I need to lose weight or I want to eat more carbs. So I'm just going to lower fat. And then, then, and through the bioenergetic perspective, like, oh, the Randall cycle, I have too much. If I have too much fat, I won't be using carbs, but they were Usually guys who are a bit larger, they were working out regularly. And in those circumstances, dropping fat super low basically crushed their hormonal profile and their ability to deal with their training regimens and their stress and things along those lines. And just adding fat to adequate levels adjusted that as well. And the same thing with women. I had quite a few women who had issues with libido or who had issues with their cycle and things along those lines. And other things played a part because the there's more that goes into that than just addressing guys' libido and their assertiveness and drive and stuff like that for with women than for men. But the with women, just adding enough fat as well was important. So I wouldn't think of it as like, I want to just have enough, like too much carbs, or I want to have all these carbs, so I have to lower fat. I would think of it more in terms of, okay, I'm sufficient on protein. I have that 0.6 to 0.8, and I'm going to be sufficient on my fat intake, and then I'll be sufficient on my carb intake. So like finding what those levels are for you it takes some tweaking. It takes some time to figure those out. Context can adjust that, right? So as an example, if you're not, if you're not training heavily on a regular basis, if you, if you have like a more sedentary lifestyle, you may not need to have quite as much carb or fat intake. If you don't have as much muscle mass, as, as we mentioned, you may not really need to have such a high amount of fat intake. You may get by with a lot less. So it really depends on on like what that context is. And I would really adjust and think of it from a sufficiency perspective and less so of like they're competing with each other, carbs versus fat. Um, so yeah, then uh, the other big one is really that blood sugar piece. Having, a, and this is extremely common in the bioenergetic sphere where people come to the sphere and they're like, I'm going to lower my fat intake. And I'm going to have a really high carb intake. And, then they'll in and the carb intake is coming from sugars. 
And so what winds up happening is the sugars are rapidly digesting. They're also, they don't spike blood sugar quite like starches do. This is like known even in the mainstream spheres of research, but they, uh, they will, what you can see in the curves is you'll go, you won't go up as high, but you'll also, you also have a period where you come down below that baseline level, which will trigger kind of this slight stress response, that glucagon, that adrenaline. And then it will start to bring you, then you kind of will feel shaky and be hungry again. And that can happen with an hour, two hours. So if you're just eating really low fat and you're having these meals that are just heavy, very heavy in carbohydrate, you'll find that you'll probably oxidize that carbohydrate or dispose of it relatively quickly, especially if you're insulin sensitive. And then you'll find, then you'll find that you're hungry like every hour, every two hours. And you have to eat all day long. You'd be, people are like basically sipping on orange juice all day long. And that's a function of having too low fat intake. The next piece is the last, the third most common issue I see is with the low fat intakes is digestive problems. So they, you, people will be constipated or they start to get bloating and things along these lines, or they start to get right upper quadrant pain with very low fat diets. And basically in the research, when you put people on very low calorie, very low fat diets, you find that they can develop gallbladder issues because you don't have that stimulus to cause bile acid release into the intestine. And that bile acid release and that fat stimulus is important for digestion overall because of that release of bile acids and also the stimulation of cholecystokinin, which involves the release, slows gastric emptying. So it kind of drips the food out so that the intestine can absorb it more effectively. And then also causes the release of digestive enzymes from the pancreas and whatnot. So it's important to have adequate fat from those three perspectives, hormones, blood sugar, and, um, and digestion. Um, and then also, again, as a energy substrate and a sparing effect for sparing glucose for the central nervous system and things along those lines. So I would say it's really important to keep that sufficiency mindset from these areas and then tweak fat and see how much do I need but in a meal or across the day so that I sleep through the night so that I'm not getting hungry in an hour so that my libido is functioning well so that my di- I'm not constipated or I'm not bloated, does it help with my digestion? So I really like look at these factors and play specifically with your fat content from there once you have your protein sufficient. Because even for me, that was like a very, very big piece. Because um, I, I remember, and I think Jay and I have talked about this, when I was in college, I went extremely low fat when I first came to Bioenergetic. And I remember I literally had zero libido. I was like 22 years old, Coming from even on keto and low carb, my libido was excellent. But I had when I went low fat, like within one to two months, libido was at, completely gone, like non-existent. And I had a girlfriend, and I was attracted to her, and all this type of stuff. And it went from like, like being able to have like any type of sexual relation on a regular basis to like not even caring about not doing anything for a week or more. And it was that was a function of my fat intake. So and it was like pretty drastic. And I've I remember like we were talking about, I was like, Jay, like, I don't know what's going on, man. Like things aren't right. And we're just like, we were like trying to troubleshoot. Was it nutrients? Was it this? Was it that? So yeah, it, those things in and of themselves, I know they sound super simple, but getting just these things right can make a massive difference into your baseline health or your foundational level function on an everyday basis alone. Yeah, of course. Of course. And if somebody's dealing with symptoms in any of these realms, whether it's sleep, hormones from the male side, hormones from the female side, liver issues, whatever it is, we have you know, thyroid issues. We have series discussing these things and also specifically how the different macronutrients play in 
and their importance and how you might want to adjust based on those things. So I would refer back uh, to those you know, specific episodes dealing with those issues. Again, if you're dealing with high cholesterol, high blood pressure, whatever it is, uh, you know, we've got series and, and episodes discussing yep. those things. You made a good point uh, about it not being about competition between carbs and fats. I think that's really important. It's important to also recognize that our body adjusts what it burns based on what it takes in. And so, and this is basically the, the way that they say in the research is that the food quotient, or sorry, the respiratory quotient reflects the food quotient. So what that's essentially meaning is that depending on how many carbs and fats you consume, your body will burn that amount. And that's important to consider. So the reason for that, again, is not because of a competition, but rather, as you were saying, has more to do with sufficiency. And so if you, let's say, consume more fat than is sufficient than you need, A, you will be using more fat utilization, and that will come at the cost of carb utilization. Uh, The other thing is that you will also have more fat going into storage. So if you have lower fat needs due to less activity, less muscle mass, or having higher body fat and already having higher circulating fat levels, then those needs will go down. And if you still consume a decent amount of fat relative to those needs, you might increase fat storage and that might come at the cost of some carb utilization. But again, it's not necessarily due to a Randall cycle effect where you can't consume these two things together or anything like that. And I'll refer back to episodes where we've discussed the Randall cycle. There's been quite a few. So yeah, so we want to be finding that sufficiency for ourselves. And you touched on some things that we can use to do that. I'm going to come back to those things like hunger, taste, and experimentation in certain ways. Uh, But just to touch on the carbs real quick. So we talked about the general range for protein, general range for fat being 20 to 40% and how to adjust there, uh, you know, why you might be want to be on a lower or higher end of the range. And then the carbs can kind of fill in after that point, you know, depending on what's left, that's kind of going to help determine what those carb needs are. We've talked about kind of minimums here being on average about 220 grams, uh, being the low end for an average person. And that's just to cover basic needs between our brain, liver, kidneys, and all of that, you know, based on a semi-optimal state. Most people will need more than that minimum of 220 grams, but some people, again, will need to start at much smaller amounts depending on where they're coming from and where their metabolism's at. So, of course, consider your context. But in general, if you, by the time you kind of sort out your protein and fat needs, carbs uh, in terms of a total percentage of calories will end up somewhere between 35 and 60%. If you're on the, you know, the low end of fat, then the carbs will tend to be higher. If you're on the higher end of fat, the carbs will tend to be lower and then same with protein depending on your needs there you know depending on your body weight muscle mass all of that that will also help to contribute or determine how many carbs you need and i will say also another kind of point here that we've discussed is that if you're consuming considerable amounts of protein you are normally going to be converting that protein through gluconeogenesis to carbohydrates and so your carb needs will essentially go down but this is not an ideal situation it has a huge cost to it energetically and hormonally And so instead, once you reduce your protein down to what those kind of optimal levels are, you might find that your carb needs and desires come up. And so that's generally a good sign and also uh, something that we want to follow and will allow your carbs to kind of fall into that percentage range. Is there anything you want to mention as far as carb intake before I touch on the kind of factors we can use to adjust these macros? Yeah, so just a couple points. Uh, The first piece is is when you say... um, you do get your protein, your fat down, and then you kind of the carbs will kind of fill in the rest, right? So just off shorthand, what does like how do you determine what the what that rest is, right? So at least for me, I 
with my clients, I will use, I will try to get a baseline understanding of what caloric intake is. So I'll see what people are eating on a regular basis. And then I'll also use a calculator. The one I use is a Catch McArdle calculator, which it takes into percent um, lean mass to some extent. And so I'll use that to get just a baseline understanding of what, what are we, what should, what should we be shooting for on, on a, on a regular caloric intake? Um, and obviously there's activity multipliers that go with that as well to give us an idea. So that's kind of, if you want to figure out what the rest is on a theoretical perspective, just to give you that baseline, you calculate those calories, get, figure out what your protein is, figure out what your, uh, fat intake is to some extent. And then the rest would be carbs to hit that amount. And again, this isn't a straight jacket. You don't have to just, you don't have to hit that amount perfectly. Maybe you're a little bit under to start and you bring it up. Maybe you're a little bit over and you feel better on that. You're you're not gaining body fat or anything like that. You're doing well on that intake, then it doesn't doesn't mean you have to automatically bring things back down. So that would just be again for a basic shorthand for calories. And just as a caveat on the calorie situation, I think for both of us, we don't see calories as this like perfect tool that you that you can use to solve all of your dietary problems. And it's just a matter of calories in, calories out. I think that's a gross, um, like a gross uh, the word. Misrepresentation. Yeah, misrepresentation of how things actually work. The old, so, and the, but that also doesn't mean that we don't think calories are helpful to use as a tool. And again, they are literally one tool. It just tells you energy content of food, allows you to compare different foods on an energy perspective, and that's it. Besides that, it's relatively useless. Like it's not going to help you understand how well you're converting substrate to energy. It's not going to tell you anything about other qualities of the food. So I would only use it within the context of, okay, how much energy are we eating? And we're quantifying it into this abstract concept just to get an idea. That's all that we're using the calories for. Um, the next piece on carbs is... Just, just, to, just to jump in real quick. You know, we've talked about this before, about how calories don't actually equal energy. It would be more similar to potential energy, but even then it's not exact. So I know you were saying energy is how most people refer to it. And so they probably understand it that way. Yeah. But... When we're talking about physiological energy, that's very different from a calorie contained in food. I'll refer back to episodes where we talked about that discrepancy. But as you're getting at, calories are essentially a good estimate of food intake, which is helpful. It's the best way that we have to estimate food intake. So it can be helpful for that, even though, as you're saying, it is not some exact measure where you tweak up 20 calories a day. And after you know however many days you've gained multiple pounds of body fat or anything like that. Again, I'll refer back to episodes where we talked through this in detail. But the important point that you're making here is we can use a general day of tracking our food or a few days where we know that we're about maintaining our weight, we can have an idea, an estimate of how many calories we're taking in. And based on that, we can get a general idea of our uh, of our baseline calorie intake. We can also compare it with a calorie equation, as you were saying, which can be helpful just for reference as far as an idea of where's your metabolism at relative to kind of where it should be. Not that those equations are perfect, but at least gives you a guideline yep. uh, that you probably want to be over. Normally those those guidelines kind of undershoot what would be normal or what would be ideal. Uh, but that can give you a good baseline to start. So as you were saying, and then you can use that estimate of, let's say, 2,800 calories a day. You've calculated your protein and fat, and now you can determine your carbs, uh, the percentage and grams based on that baseline that you've determined. Yep, exactly. Um, with that said, uh, specifically on the carbohydrate piece, just a couple other points. Um, first things first, if you're coming from a metabolically deranged background or dysfunctional background, say you have some type of type 2 diabetes, metabolic syndrome, impaired glucose tolerance, when you first come 
if you and say you're used to being on keto, say you're 50 grams of carbs a day, something like that. When you first switch over or you're starting to transition over to a bioenergetic diet, it's okay if you're not at 200, 250, 220 grams of carbs. The goal to shoot for first is to just get over that 150 gram mark. So that 150 gram mark is the absolute basement level of carb intake that you would need on like to for like function of nervous system and some other essential areas of the body on a regular basis. And then that 200 level is where you're starting to optimize other hormonal systems and things along those lines. So I would get over to the 150 first. I would just and then try to titrate your way up slowly to the higher values, especially if if you're feeling fine, you're not having drastic blood sugar swings and things like that because you're you're not used to having the carbohydrate, then you could probably go up a little bit faster and kind of see how you feel. Um, But if you are having issues, then that's kind of like the lowest level that I would try to shoot for on a regular basis. Because if you're not at least at that level, then you do have to upregulate gluconeogenesis to provide that carbohydrate. And as we kind of talked about in the Rob Wolf videos that we did, talking about blood sugar regulation, um, upregulating glucagon to which is the one of the main hormones for gluconeogenesis to produce glucose from protein is not an ideal thing to do over time. And it's actually something that's drastically upregulated in the diabetic state. So you don't want to be further pushing that pathway overall. So I would want to see, at least for me, I like to see at least over the 150 to start and then slowly titrate up further from there. And then we could talk about sources and carb sources and other things as we go. Um, so that would, that's just like a little caveat for anybody who's really dealing with blood sugar issues and carbohydrate tolerance. The other piece I wanted to add is uh, a reference that I like to use with carb and protein intakes is at least two times as much carbs of protein as so like the absolute basement being that 200 gram level. But then from there, I like to get at least two times as much carbs as protein. In general, that's usually the bottom threshold that I use for people who are don't have issues with carbohydrates or things along those lines. And then I'll titrate up and down from there within calories and based on fat levels. So just another piece. And the reason why I use that two to one carb to protein ratio is there's some re- there's some research looking at associations between carb and protein uh, intakes in their, in their ratio and finds that at least a two to one value helps to lower those glucocorticoids or cortisol over the long term. Um, and the thought process around this, some of the ideas around this is that when you start to upregulate gluconeogenesis, that gluconeogenesis does uh, require the glucocorticoids involvement and particularly involving involved with the toxification of ammonia and increasing urea cycle and things along those lines. So you don't want to really be pushing that too heavy. So you want to have sufficiency of carbs and then maybe shoot for at least that two to one ratio. Plus the carbohydrates do have um, a suppressive effect to some extent on the glucocorticoid system, especially considering that the goal of this system is to increase carbohydrate availability um, in, in situations where there isn't adequate amounts or there's an increased requirement for carbohydrates and the body doesn't have enough in that moment of time. So having adequate carbs can help to keep that stress lower. And so again, two to one as kind of the minimum if you don't have an issue. And then for most people, 200 would probably be the lowest I would go. And then if impaired glucose tolerance or diabetic situations, 150 is probably the lowest that I usually would go with people and then try to titrate up from there, depending on tolerance and um, how they're feeling, preference, et cetera. Yeah. And as far as the kind of baseline values here, whether it's 150 grams or more like 260 grams, it's it's hard to value uh, to determine baseline value of carb needs because it varies so much based on the state. 
Of course, if someone's in a ketogenic, you know, on a ketogenic state, they're going to be using much less glucose and you could call that baseline much lower as opposed to if somebody's in more of a carb-fed state and 100% of their brain needs or nearly 100 are coming from glucose. So it really depends. There is some research that, again, I'll reference an episode where we discussed this. It was in the Nutrition with Judy episode uh, where we talked about her article. Uh, but there's some research that basically based on looking at liver glucose production in fasting, the amount of, if that's extrapolated out to a full day, it's closer to 190 to 260 grams a day, suggesting that that might be more of our quote baseline need when we're more carb fed. But again, it all hits, it all kind of varies and it's really hard to put any specific number on there when you also throw in all of the other variables. So uh, either way, I think what you're also kind of saying as you were putting the context of someone who's coming from low carb, at that point, we wouldn't jump from 50 grams to 200 grams anyway. We would want to slowly work our way up. So even if 150 grams is the baseline, we're still not saying, all right, go from 40 grams a day to 150. It's titrating in that direction. So we always want to keep that in mind, uh, regardless of what our baseline carbohydrate needs are. The other thing is in somebody who is dealing with insulin resistance or type 2 diabetes and has used low carb as a way to manage that, increasing carbs, you know, slowly can definitely be helpful, making sure it's from sources that are going to digest slowly, making sure it's in balanced meals. Those things can all help. There is also something to be said about eventually switching over all the way the other way to a very low fat diet. Uh, there's some decent research that that can be particularly successful in these sorts of populations that are in a severely insulin resistant state. I'll link back to an article by Denise Minger titled In Defense of Low Fat, and then there's some sort of subtitle or something after that, uh, where she talks about some of these diets that are basically 10% or lower fat intake, which of course comes at a potential cost, uh, unless you already have a lot of circulating fat, so maybe it's less of a cost, uh, but can potentially help a lot in an insulin resistant state as well. So again, context <laughs> uh, is a huge factor here. But in general, we do want to be adjusting these macronutrient intakes based on all the factors we mentioned. Again, look at our previous episodes discussing different things you might be experiencing. As well as some other factors too, we can look at our tastes and cravings as indicators. We can't always use these clearly. You know, if you're craving a donut, that doesn't necessarily mean the donut is the right food for you. But if you're craving carbohydrate-rich foods, that might be a sign that you're not getting enough carbohydrates. Versus if you're craving fat-rich foods, it might be a sign you're not getting enough fat. So you want to keep those things in mind and how they change with your different macronutrient intakes. You also want to use hunger and blood sugar, you know, between meals is something we've talked about a little bit here, where if you're very hungry within an hour or two after eating, it might be a sign of too little fat. Whereas if you're not very hungry six hours after eating, maybe it's a sign of too much fat or too large of a meal or issue with digesting certain foods. And so you might want to reduce the fat intake at that point. Uh, same thing with total calorie intake. How hungry are you for your meals? We should be hungry. Hungry is a good sign. It's a sign that uh, in general, as a rule of thumb, if it's kind of a coming from a healthy place, it's a sign that our metabolism is working well and increasing the the usage of fuel. We've talked about this in previous episodes. I'll link back to that. But those are some of the things we want to use when determining our macro intake beyond all the others uh, or in addition to all the others. And the last, which is kind of something that's always a, an important factor to consider or a approach is experimentation. And we want to experiment with different things, make slow adjustments, slow tweaks, one thing at a time, see how you respond, and then continue to make tweaks and use those results to then inform the, the way that you're going to move forward and what you're going to adjust and change. So this is going to be the case whether we're talking for 
uh, talking about macronutrient adjustments or the timing of our meals or certain individual foods. We want to keep these sorts of things in mind. Yep. Yeah. I don't, I don't have too much to add there. I mean, I pretty much agree. I, a lot of this process is uh, individual experimentation process. The goal for us here is just to give those baselines. The way I describe it with the clients that I work with is we're putting point zero on the graph. And then we have from point zero, we can go to point one, point two, point three, point four, as you go through that journey and you make different adjustments and you'll have multiple iterations of diet as you go along. There's not, you don't have, it's not like you figure these out, you, you put the calculations on board and good, you're perfect. You have the perfect diet. Now there's going to be adjustments to these things as you go along. You may find that for me, as an example, personally, I find that if I go below 80 grams of fat per day, I start to not feel as good. Um, now I work out regularly and I have a higher muscle mass and yada yada and all that type of stuff. But I usually shoot for closer to 100 grams just because I feel better at that level. And so that's something that I tested out over time, playing around with different variations of fat, despite whatever my initial calculations were. So keep in mind that there's going to be multiple iterations. You're going to go through different testing process. You're going to find out new things that will adjust how you eat on a regular basis. And this is just 0.1 or 0.0 on your graph. This is just the first step in your journey. And it's just to give you some direction, some guidance to kind of narrow things down a bit so that it's not just all over the place, not super ambiguous and things along those lines. Um, yeah, I don't know if you wanted to talk about um, organizing in a meal or meals across the day or uh, like food sources and things like that. Yeah, so let's dig into the kind of first part there, which is just, you know, the bigger picture throughout the whole day. What are we looking at? Of course, based on blood sugar, based on digestion, based on hormonal regulation, we don't want to be fasting. We don't want to be avoiding meals. So in general, we want to eat, I would say, at a minimum three meals a day, you know, nicely spread out. And I would say at a maximum, maybe about six meals a day, although at that point, they're going to be smaller, more like snacks or just smaller meals. And what that tends to shake out to is for most people, I would say an ideal range of about three to five hours between meals. Sometimes it can be lower, more at the two-ish range. Sometimes it could be higher at the six-ish range. Those things can be indicators of our current state. You know, talking about context, if somebody is new to the bioenergetic approach and they can't take in as many carbs at once and their carb utilization isn't as good and their glycogen storage isn't as good, then they might end up at that lower end of the range, you know, eating every couple hours to keep the stress hormones low and everything. Over time, we'd want to see that extend a little bit. And then same thing on the other side, you know, if, if the fat's too high or our metabolism's particularly low and maybe we're having really large meals because we're used to fasting, you know, all sorts of things like that, maybe that'll lead to not being hungry until six hours after a meal and that might be a little bit too much. But uh, yeah, just some kind of general guidelines there that I would mention on the timing side. Um, anything yeah, that so you want to add in? Uh, first piece, if you are dealing with digestive issues, you're having a hard time with digestion, I would really recommend at least putting a three-hour gap between your meals to optimize migrating motor complex function. So the migrating motor complex is a series of rhythmic contractions in the intestine. We kinda, we've discussed this before, and it essentially clears the intestine mm -hmm. out, clears debris, clears bacteria, things along those lines. And so it takes about 180 minutes to complete a cycle. And every time you eat, you will restart that cycle. So putting that three-hour window, if you have bloating or you're having digestive problems or SIBO or anything like that, can help to optimize that process and can help to clear things out. As I was saying before, when people come to Bioenergetic, they're on a low-fat diet. 
and they're uh, eating large amounts of carbs and they have to eat every hour. So one of the things that people start to notice, oh man, I'm getting bloated, I'm getting digestive issues, things along those lines. So the first thing that I usually do is I'll, I'll put a three hour gap between meals. Now, when you do this, you have to make sure that you're going to last. So I wouldn't just arbitrarily put a three hour gap between your meal and then keep your fat intake at two grams for that meal. I'd probably bump your fat intake up a bit, maybe 10 to 20 grams so that you're going to last for that three hour window before you eat again. So that's the first things first for the like some of the meal timing for different people. Now, some people are it, it some people are okay and it also depends on your goals. So if you don't have digestive issues and you're trying to gain weight, you're trying to put on muscle in the gym and you need to eat in a decent caloric surplus, then you may want to go to 2-hour windows between meals and have that 6 meals a day or something like that. Again, this also the other thing to keep in mind here there's multiple factors. So like what does your daily life schedule look like? Do you have a job and you only have a one hour eating window and you have to eat before and you have to eat after because you, you only get that one hour lunch? Then you may have to adjust your meals to so that you can work that out and maybe bring like a snack at some point. Do you have, are you like a professional bodybuilder and your job is to just eat and train? Then yeah, it's going to be easier to put those six meals in in a day. So it's important to keep in mind what you're doing on a regular basis what your life constraints are, and then you can adjust your macros in each meal to to a, to hit those particular goals. So as an example, uh, another specific example, for if say you have, you want to get up in the morning and you have to get your four meals in, but you've been having a hard time keeping a three to four hour gap between meals because then you eat too late at night. So your first meal in the morning, if you, you get up, you eat something quick just to break that fast. You can have something that's very low fat, and then you would only have an hour or two hour eating window between the meals, and then you could have a big meal later on once you're kind of up and you've you've gotten your stuff together or whatnot. Or say you have to train really quick, or you have an hour between the time that you eat and you train, then maybe you don't want to have a heavy fat meal. So you can adjust the amount of fat and carbs and different components of your meals so that you can adjust the gaps in between, but in between your meals, such so you're lasting, you're not having blood sugar crashes or getting super hungry and things like that. So there's the first things first is just kind of figuring out how many meals you're going to have in a day, what works for you for your lifestyle. I wouldn't recommend running like heavy intermittent fast or like really short eating windows on a, or on a regular basis, but figure out whatever your meals are, three meals, four meals, five meals, six meals, whatever the deal is. And then I would start to adjust your macros and see how you feel. You may find if you only have a two hour block between your meals and you're eating 30, 40 grams of fat, that by the time you get to your next meal, you're not going to feel very good trying to eat again because you're still going to be full from that previous meal. And that's from that fat slowing that gastric emptying. Um, another thing is protein. If you go too, and I was kind of mentioning this at first, if you go too heavy in protein in your meals, you will increase your satiety quite a bit. And then you also, there is an amount of protein per meal that actually simulates muscle protein synthesis. So that's that 0.4 grams per kilogram of body weight. So you may want to uh, like see, use that as a threshold for protein per meal and not have a hundred grams of protein in one meal and then 20 grams of protein in another meal. And then another meal with zero grams of protein. You may want to spread that protein intake out kind of evenly across your meals and hit a threshold based on that 0.4 grams per kilogram of body weight. So there's a couple strategies that you have in there and adjusting protein and fat amount in a meal. Carbs, in my experience, uh, especially if there's fruit-based or sugar-based carbs, those won't change how like hungry you'll get. And for some people, even starch, 
won't really decrease their appetite that much or change the length between meals. It's really the protein and fat that's going to do that. Um, actually, interestingly, Jay, I was watching your, I was watching your podcast with Mark Bell. Um, if anybody wants to see it, it was a pretty good podcast, and Jay broke down some really good topics. But he was talking to, I think the gentleman's name was, I think it was Andrew. Um, I think he was the mm-hmm. like the like the tech guy there. He was the running, producer. The producer, yeah. Um, and he was saying that he eats like 10 eggs in the morning and then he's not hungry all day. And it's like, yeah, you just ate 60 mm-hmm. grams of protein and maybe 40 grams of fat or something. And it's like, of course, you're not going to be hungry because you just increase the tidy signaling with all that protein. You drastically de- delayed gastric emptying with all that fat. And also you're full from all of that, the fat that you had on a regular basis as well. So things like that, Like when people talk about, oh, I'm eating on my keto diet, I'm eating on my low carb diet and I have my 16 ounces of steak, which could be however many, like maybe a hundred grams of protein or some crazy value of protein and then a bunch of fat. And they're like, oh, I'm not hungry until the, until like six or seven hours later. It's like, that is not because this is a mad, this diet is magical and that you don't need to eat other things. It's that that heavy bolus of protein and fat is going to drastically increase satiety and it's also going to take a lot longer to digest because of the delayed gastric emptying and the signals from the protein and fat. So tape metering those out is probably going to be a better uh, uh, a better uh, strategy unless you like really don't have time in your day to eat, which um, I would that probably wouldn't be a good thing in and of itself. But metering those things out will help you last longer between meals. And the last thing or last appropriately between meals. So not too long and not too short. The last thing I want to mention is that when people come from low carb or they come from uh, carnivore or things along those lines and they start adding carbs on board, they start to get, they start to feel the blood sugar swings, right? So you eat some carbohydrate, blood sugar comes up and then it starts to come back down. And so the first thought is, oh, I'm insulin resistant. I have problems with carbohydrates. I can't have carbohydrates, all, like things along these lines. That's not necessarily the case. It's, it's just when you're running carnivore or you're running low carb or keto, anything like that, you don't have a lot of carbohydrate that's increasing blood sugar and then causing an insulin response, which will bring it back down. You're pretty much just running on gluconeogenesis. So you won't feel the swings as much. But when you bring carbohydrate on board, now you have the, the back and forth. That doesn't mean you're insulin resistant. That's par for the course. That's a normal experience. That's what's supposed to happen. And the difference is, is when you run on those adaptive hormones consistently, you won't feel the shifts into the adaptive hormones. There's not going to be that perceptual change from, oh, I have carbohydrates and I feel good and they're exogenous and I have energy and whatnot to, oh man, my blood sugar just kind of dropped. And now I'm starting to feel that kick in of the adrenaline and glucagon. That kick in doesn't last very long, maybe 20, 30 minutes. You get maybe a little shaky and whatnot. And then those hormones kick in and then you're good again. So if you don't ever have the transition period, if you don't feel that transition effect because you're always running those hormones, then yeah, you're not going to feel that transition because it's not happening. But when you start having the transition, that's kind of normal to be like, oh, I just ran out of those carbs that I ate a little while ago. My blood sugar just started to come back down after. And I, we, I think we would argue that it's probably better <laughs> to not run on these hormones consistently and to actually like get out of break out of periods out of them than to like just continually like run these hormones over and over again. And something to keep in mind is that 
if you're constructing your meals appropriately with enough fat, enough protein, enough carbs, enough fiber in, in one meal, what you'll find is that you can kind of stretch the times that you'll feel those gaps um, where you start to feel that blood sugar dip. And you can say, if I'm going to eat every three or four hours or every four hours, you eat enough in that meal so that by the time you get to your next meal, you're not really having that crash. You're ready to eat and you have a meal ready and things along those lines. So you can adjust those different things by playing with the macronutrients in the meal. Yeah. Yeah. A lot of things to consider there uh, that are important when it comes to building meals and, and making sure that it works with their own context. There's a few things that I wanted to come back to that you mentioned and maybe a couple others. Uh, one, on the protein side, you had mentioned yep. that the amount of protein that leads to the, that would lead to the maximal amount of protein synthesis in a meal is about 0.4 grams per kilogram. And I just wanted to point out that I know quite a bit of that research was built on using a protein supplement, something like whey protein, which is going to digest very quickly and is not going to be slowed down by other nutrients. And so that would mean that you're going to reach that maximal protein synthesis much quicker. Whereas if you were, you know, and, and for a much shorter period of time, but if you're actually talking about a mixed meal, that number could be considerably higher where because it's digesting slower, you can get more protein over a longer period of time and still use that structurally. So that number might be, uh, that 0.4 grams per kilogram might be low. And so we might actually be able to benefit from higher amounts. Uh, although, again, we don't want to be forcing massive protein meals to begin with. If we are, that's probably a sign that we're not getting enough throughout the day. We're, it's probably going to come at the cost of getting enough carbs with that meal, especially if we're trying to get, at the very least, I would say a one-to-one -one ratio of carb to protein uh, per meal. Normally, two-to-one is ideal. But again, if you had a snack recently or if you're having a snack after that's mostly carb-based, then you might not need as much with a meal. But anyway, if that's the case, you probably still aren't going to have a massive protein-based meal. But I think over 0.4 grams per kilogram might still be totally fine. Yeah, I use that as the as like the basement, as the threshold. And that usually works out between 20 and 40 grams per meal for people. Um, <clears throat> by threshold, I mean like the bottom number that I would usually use. Oh, you were not saying uh, that as a program. It sounded like you were suggesting that as the max. No, I use that as the actual, I use that technically as the bottom number. And then, so say, uh, just as a quick example, so that we can kind of give, put this into perspective, say your protein intake per day should be 120 grams, you calculate it between the 0.6 to 0.8 grams per pound. And then you do, you run your 0.4 grams per kilogram, and it winds up being like 25 grams per meal, I'll actually set that as the bottom value for that. And then I usually since if they're going to have four meals in a day, I'll run 30 grams per meal, which would give you that 120 gram mark. And then it also puts you over that threshold. So that's uh, perhaps that's usually how I situate it. So I kind of use that as the bottom number and then go from there. And the other thing is that is based the that muscle protein synthesis or like triggering mTOR was also based around leucine content mm -hmm. in those foods. So you're really going to want to make sure that that protein is largely coming from your animal products as well. So if you're like plugging a meal into chronometer and you're eating a bunch of peas with your steak or whatever, I would really just focus on like what the animal protein value is in the meal as well, and not necessarily what all the like fruit or peas or potatoes or these other protein sources are per se. Now, overall, like it's not doesn't have to be that specific, but that's something that I look at as well. I'm trying to shoot for at least 25 grams of protein in that meal at from the steak or chicken or fish or eggs or whatever the or dairy or whatever the source is going to be. Gotcha. And if you convert that 0.4 grams per kilogram to pounds, it's about 0.18 grams per pound. 
of body weight. And so that's about a fourth of your total protein needs. If your total protein, if you're doing about 0.73 grams per pound, then this 0.18 grams per pound is splitting that between four meals. So, uh, or between four protein-based meals. So that totally makes sense. Of course, you don't have to do it that way. Somebody could be doing three protein-based meals with a snack that's mostly carbs and fat or something like that. So uh, yeah, if you wanted to spread it out evenly, that would certainly work. But that does bring me to the next thing I wanted to mention, which is that for a meal, normally I would say that's going to involve, when I'm thinking of a meal, I normally think of a protein-containing meal. And in that case, we want to get at least, again, one, but if not two to one ratio of carbs to fat, or sorry, carbs to protein with that meal. And then we normally want to get some fat with it as well. When it comes to meals, or really I would call them snacks that are not protein-based, it's yep. totally fine for most people for them to be just carb-based or just carbon fat. It can be just some fruit or some fruit and chips cooked in coconut oil or chocolate or cheese or something like that. Of course, cheese has a bit of protein. Uh, it doesn't, you know, not everything has to be a full meal, especially if you're leaning toward, you know, four or five meals or if you're talking about or like meals or snacks where we're talking about a snack before bed. We don't want that to be protein heavy, those kinds of things. So yep. those are all things to consider when it comes to how you're going to construct a meal or snack. I don't think I have much else to add. Yeah, I think of snacks kind of just as like bridging the gap sometimes. Because mm -hmm. so say somebody has like a nine to five work day, usually they'll have breakfast before work and then they'll get a lunch period, but then they won't get another like time to eat in the day for work. So at that point is when, and then you wind up getting this like massive window between lunch and dinner. So that's mm -hmm. the perfect time to put a, a snack in there. And usually um, what I like to do is a carb and fat combination so that mm -hmm. it kind of carries you through the rest of the day, gives you that pick me up and then carries you through the rest of the day. Um, and I guess we'll talk about sources in a bit, but yeah, it's usually like fruit and nuts or chocolate and fruit or something along those lines, just so that you you can like make it through that period. And if you do do protein, I would do something like, I usually do something like easy and quick digesting, which could be like a collagen or a whey with that snack. Sure. Yeah, if you're, if you're looking for an extra protein source, which yep. you, you mentioned nuts. Again, we'll talk about sources, but just to be clear, these would be low yeah. PUFA nuts. Macadamia which, nuts. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Sorry, because... that's the only, that's the only nut that I like. And when I talk about nuts, that's the only nut that I'm thinking about. Like I'm literally picturing macadamias. And since some of them, they're not even, the other ones aren't even considered. Like I don't even like, oh, it's not food. I just, I just automatically nuts and macadamias have become synonymous at this point. <laughs> gotcha. <laughs> so yeah, not about that. As long as listeners know that. Yeah. All right, we're going to end that episode there and pick back up in part two, where we'll be discussing why you want to avoid vegetarian-fed chicken and acorn-fed pork. We'll be going over the best bioenergetic fat, protein, and carb sources. We'll be discussing why it's best to avoid salmon and bluefin tuna and what fish and seafood to have instead. We'll be going over whether we should be including vegetables and fiber in our diet, how to avoid vegetable oils and what fats to use instead, and also when it makes sense to include high FODMAP foods. If you did enjoy today's episode, please leave a like or comment if you're watching on YouTube. And if you're listening elsewhere, please leave a review or five-star rating on iTunes. All of those things really do a lot to help support the podcast and are very much appreciated. To check out the show notes for today's episode, you can head over to jfeldmanwellness.com slash podcast, where you can take a look at the studies and articles and anything else that we referenced throughout today's episode. And if you're looking to optimally support your metabolism and lose weight, improve your digestion, get amazing sleep, boost your energy, rebalance your hormones, and so much more with clear action steps and strategies, along with personalized guidance from me, 
head over to jfeldmanwellness.com slash solution, where you can find all of the information for the Energy Balance Solution program. This program includes customized health coaching, a video library, which includes videos on restoring gut health, losing weight without destroying your metabolism, boosting your metabolism, having amazing restorative sleep, how to rebalance your hormones, and tons more. It also includes resources like a sample meal plan and supplement guide, as well as a private community. So head over to jfeldmanwellness.com solution to check out all the details, and I'll see you in the next episode.